If you will, open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 19, or take your phone out and, and uh, look that up, Deuteronomy 19. You know, often when people are um, dying, they say final words that sort of mark their life. Uh, often those words reflect the kind of life that they've lived or what their priorities have been. Martin Luther, the, the great preacher, his final words were, Our God is the God from whom salvation comes. P.T. Barnum, who came up with the, the three-ring circus, says his last words were actually a question. What was the gate receipt at Madison Square Garden? That's what on his mind. Leonardo da Vinci, the amazing artist, ended his life in guilt saying, I've offended God because my art has not lived up to the quality it should have been. Often it's just one word. Famous dictionary um, composer, last word in life was dictionary. Uh, famous music conductor, last word was Mozart. Today we come to some of the last words of Moses. He, he's written this book of sermons we call Deuteronomy. This is the last. And we might say his last word is covenant. Covenant, that's an unusual word for us. We're going to explore it today. Go, go with me to Deuteronomy 19 as he gives these parting words to the people of God. Verse, excuse me, Deuteronomy 29, verse 9. Carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything you do. All of you standing today in the presence of the Lord your God, your leaders and chief men, your elders and officials, and all the men of Israel, together with your children, your wives, and the foreigners living in your camps who chop your wood and carry your water, you are standing in here in order to enter a covenant with the Lord. And he's making with you today and sealing it with an oath to confirm to you today as his people that he may be your God as he promised you, as he swore to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am making this covenant in its oath, not only with you who are standing here today, but in the presence of God, but also with those who are not here today. He says the key word here is this word covenant. Now, covenant's a tough word for us because we don't use covenant except maybe, you know, the covenant for our, our neighborhood association. And we use it in sort of a light way. And to us, it's sort of an archaic word. And you say, buddy, is there not a new translation? Is there not a modern way of putting this? And let me give you an answer. No, there really isn't. Because in, in modern terms, we, we don't have a word that carries this kind of weight. Well, what is a covenant? Let me go ahead and give you a definition. This is by a great preacher I love named Tim Keller, who is responsible for many of the things I'm going to say today. But I love his definition. A covenant is a voluntary, mutually binding vow to be loving and faithful no matter the circumstances. Now, let me tell you, say this about covenant. As we've gone through this chapter, it, it's a stunning blend of law and love. That's what makes it so strong. He says, you, you are making some vows before me. That, that's law language. You're making an oath. You're signing the bottom line. But on the other hand, we also see in this covenant, there's love language. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. If I overhear a conversation you're having, you say, 
Uh, he's my man. She's my woman. Uh, that's my Susie. That's my Johnny. I immediately know this is somebody really close to you, intimate to you. They're not just some acquaintance. They're, there's a close relationship. And so this covenant language involves both law and love. So what is a covenant? It's a relationship more loving and intimate than a, just a legal relationship. It's not just a legal relationship. But it's stronger and firming, firmer than just a personal relationship. It's an amazing combination of law and love. It's a category buster for us. We don't use it much. And we, we say things, we're, we're more consumers, you know? I mean, I want you to see a con- continuum here this morning from, from relationships that are consumer relationships to all the way to relationships that are covenant relationships. We're not much into covenant relationships. I mean, the closest we get is, is marriage, and even that has been lightened from a covenant relationship. We, we say things like this, you know, I'll be what I should be as long as you are who you should be. Or I'll perform, I'll give to you when you perform and you give to me. That's a consumer relationship. That's saying, I, I, I'm dependent on what you do. A covenant relationship says something very different. Here's what a covenant relationship says. I will be who I should be, whether you are who you should be or not. Now, listen to me. Covenant relationships are scary. Because in a covenant relationship, if you get married... You, you come to a point where you're saying, you know what, um, your needs are more important than my needs. I'm going to meet your needs even if you're not meeting my needs. And, and you go, how, how do I know whether I can enter this kind of relationship or not? It's scary, but, but listen to me. It's so incredibly beautiful. When you have a relationship that combines law and love, when it's personal and loving, and legal and even binding, it's far deeper, far closer, far more fulfilling, far more joyful than simply a consumer relationship that I can get out on a whim. Now, now be, be honest with me, guys. Every relationship does not have to be a covenant relationship. Many of your relationships belong to be consumer relationships. Very few should actually be covenant relationships. For instance, you know... Um, you know, my, my car mechanic, I've got a, a consumer relationship with him. I, I like him, I trust him. Right now, he seems to be doing pretty good. But if I get the, the whiff that maybe he's not telling me the truth, or that he's overcharging me, or he's fixing something he shouldn't, he really didn't fix, then I'm out of there, right? Well, with your barber or your beautician, you've got a, you probably have a consumer relationship. You may like them, but if they bought your hair, or if they doubled their price overnight, you're finding somebody else. Those are consumer relations. That's okay. Now, the closer you get to covenant, the more serious the relationship. Then you've got probably right in the middle, friendship. And then you've got best friendships where you go, you know what? Uh, we've been friends for life, and we're going to be that way no matter what. And then you have the ultimate covenant relationship in our life, which is marriage. Where you stand before a preacher, and you make not just a personal commitment, you, you sign a legal document that says you're married. And guys... A marriage won't work, we all found that out, without it being a covenant relationship. And here's what I want you to see this morning. It's impossible 
to have a relationship with God unless it's a covenant relationship. It's just not going to work. God's not going to put up with it. Your most important relationships need to be covenant. Now, we're not sure about that in our culture today. We say things like this. I'm religious. I'm spiritual. I'm spiritual, but I'm not really religious. I really believe in God, and I really like Jesus, but I don't want to be committed to a church. I really think Jesus is cool, but I don't want to submit my life to a list of rules that anybody might give me. What we're saying there is this. I want a personal relationship with God, but I don't want a covenant relationship. And God says the only way that I'm going to enter this relationship is as a covenant relationship. Not just as a consumer where you can walk away anytime you want to. The Bible says that's impossible. Everybody, God has a close relationship. Abraham, Moses, Isaac, Joseph. It's in a covenant relationship. Well, that brings us to our our second point today, and and that's the mystery of this. Because there's there's a tension in this relationship. Because we do have love and we do have law. We, we got both of them working here. I mean, back to Deuteronomy, we didn't even make it to the really disturbing point. Listen to verses 19 and 20 that says what happens to someone who violates the covenant. When such a person hears the words of this oath and they invoke a blessing on themselves thinking, I'll be safe even though I persist in going my own way. If I go, you know, I'm going to be okay even if I disregard what God says. I know what God said about sex, but I'm not going to pay attention to it. I know what God says about drunkenness, but who cares? I know what God says about faithfulness, but I do what I want to do. He says, I will bring disaster on the waterland as well as the dry. The Lord will never be willing to forgive them. His wrath and zeal will burn against them. That original covenant language here of Moses was full of law and love. And when you read the Bible, you see the same thing. On every page almost, it's like, if you don't obey the commands, this is the result. If you don't follow God, you are forsaken. On the other hand, God says, I love you with all my love. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Almost every page has that. How do we live with that tension of law and love? You see, God is a judge. A good judge would not be worth his position if he didn't enforce the law. We'd vote him out of office. And God is that judge, and at the same time, he's that loving father. How, how do those two things come together? We might say, how do you put together the idea in Scripture of blessing and curses? Because we fail. And lots of verses say, when you fail, you're in trouble. I got tickled watching the Alabama football game yesterday because I, I learned something I'd never known. But the, 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 the visitor's dressing room, locker room, is called the failure room. Oh, that's pretty good. But what's even more fascinating is how they got there is there's a rich donor who gave a lot of money that they wanted to name something about, but they certainly weren't going to give the home team locker room the name failure room. So he gives the money and they honor him by calling this the failure room. I like that. But what I don't like about it is that I live in the failure room almost every day of my life. When you fail and you fail and you fail, 
And if God overlooks that, where is the holiness of God? If you fail and you fail and you fail and God cuts you off, where is the faithfulness of God? So God and we find ourselves in this, what we call in the South, a, a predicament. Uh, maybe more current words we might use in this tension is between conservative and liberal. The, the liberal says, yeah, I know you ought to obey God and that's a good deal. But if you, you, know, if you can't quite do it, we know God's loving. In the long run, everybody's going to be okay. It doesn't matter what you do. On the conservative end, we go, yeah, we know God is a loving God. Um, but, you know, if you don't keep his laws, you're going to be in trouble. How do we put this together? How does God put this together in this covenant language? Let me give you a hint. It was back in Deuteronomy. In verse 13, he talked about the covenant that God had made with Abraham. You see, understand the covenants. You've got the eternal covenant first established with Abraham that really is for everybody, that's restored for us in Christ. Then you have the covenant with Moses on Sinai. And then you have Jesus restoring the original covenant. What kind of covenant did God make with Abraham? It's a crazy story. You need to go home and read this in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, God is making this covenant with Abraham. And Abraham basically says to God, okay, that sounds really good, but how do I know I can count on you, God? And God says to Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go slaughter a a heifer, a goat, and a lamb. And then here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you to, to slaughter it, cut them in two, put half of the carcasses on one side, the other part of the carcasses on the other side, and and make an aisle right in between. We go, this is crazy stuff. It wasn't crazy to Abraham. This is the way you made a covenant. In our day, we say, give me a piece of paper and and let me sign it. And that day, you didn't do that. You went out and you slaughtered animals and you put them on either side. And to make a covenant, you walked between them. You say, what is the deal with that? Here's what you said when you walked between the dead carcasses. What you said is, if I don't keep my covenant, may I be slaughtered and as dead as these carcasses. Hmm. Can you imagine going to sign the contract on your car and doing that? I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty rough. You know, I, if I don't keep the covenant, I deserve the curses. So Abraham understands this language. And then things get weird on Abraham. It turns dark. Darkness is a sign of God's judgment. And when it gets dark, then there's a torch that appears. Representative of the presence of God, it's fire and smoke like God on Mount Sinai. And the torch appears, and Abraham's just watching. And so God appears, and here's what happens. God himself walks down the aisle between the carcasses. God's saying, I'm making the promise. If I don't keep my end of the deal, may I be dead. That's pretty cool. And Abraham shocked that God is making this covenant. But then here's what really blew Abraham away. God never 
asked Abraham to walk the aisle. So what's that saying? It's saying to you and I, God made the promise for both of them, and God was willing to take the curse for both of them. God says, not only will I be torn to pieces if I don't keep this agreement, I will be torn to pieces if you don't keep the agreement. Now ponder that for a moment. That's the covenant. And Jesus becomes the fulfillment and the hero of that covenant. You see, here's what happens on the cross. Jesus fulfilled both the law and the love to establish a new covenant. On the cross, Jesus did what God foreshadowed back with Abraham. He can take the curse for our disobedience. Listen, I mean, the Bible's pretty specific about this. Listen to Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order, listen to this, that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So what happens on the cross? Jesus says, I'll be torn to pieces, not only if I don't keep the covenant, but if you don't keep the covenant. On the cross, Jesus is literally torn in two. His body is torn in two so that you and I can not live under the curse of the law, but live under the blessings of the law. That's why when we take of the Lord's Supper, which we're about to do over the next few moments, we use bread. And and, and this bread represents the body of Jesus. And that's why before Jesus blessed it, he broke it. And, And what it signifies is that in the cross, there was the whip. And Jesus' back is ripped into smithereens. There's the crown of thorns that pierces skin. There's the spear that comes on his side. There's the nails in his feet and in his hands. His body is ripped in two to take the curse of the law. And so this morning, as we're about to pass the bread, I want you to spend some time thinking about the broken body. We're going to be listening to a song called Your Covenant of Love. What could be more loving, more shocking, more mind-blowing than Jesus being able to, being willing in His perfection He didn't need to be ripped. He didn't deserve it. We did. But he took it. Let's pray together. Oh, God, we thank you so much 
for the broken body. God, we thank You, Father, that Jesus was willing to take the curse of the law. That on the cross, He was the one who was able to reconcile law and love because He took the curse of the law so that we might have that personal, loving relationship with You. God, help us to ponder what He did for us these next few moments. We serve a God who's a a covenant keeper. And when we look at a story like in the Old Testament, what what we're seeing is a, a shadow of that reality. That crazy story that we watched in, in Genesis is one of those Old Testament stories that give us a clue of how good God is, of how He's that covenantal God. But we don't see the reality until Jesus. I mean, on the picture there, you can, you can see there's a person, you can see the outline, but you can't see the features in the face. Something's made me a little uncomfortable since we've gone to our, our new lighting system is to this point, if you're sitting on the second row, it casts a shadow. So if I raise my hands, everybody sees it. And so you, 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 see a, you see a shadow. When I get up here, you get the blessing of the reality, right? Maybe you think I'd rather have a shadow. <laughs> I understand. But, but here's the cool thing is, is that shadow we saw back there with Abraham has become a reality in Jesus. And, and this, this feast that we're partaking of is the feast of the covenant. Listen to to Paul quoting Jesus. In the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. This could literally be translated this way. This cup is the new covenant and it costs me my blood. You see, what's, what's a cup about? In the Bible, a cup is about suffering. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays that the cup would pass. What's he saying? I don't want to have to go through this suffering if there's any other way. And so when Jesus is on the cross, as he's taking the curses of the covenant, he is experiencing drinking the cup of suffering down to the dregs. What's the blood about? What's the scarlet blood that we look at in the cup? It's, it's about life. Blood is the symbol of life. God's saying, I am willing to give my life because you haven't kept the covenant. So it cost Jesus his life for us to partake of this feast. You, you see, the difference in that old covenant was Oh, they can offer some blood, and they can offer some sacrifices, but it, it wasn't effective. At best, it could roll sins forward. But in the new covenant, Jesus is that once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. No longer do we need to sacrifice. No longer do we need to, to live in fear. Because the price has been paid. And so this morning, as you drink of the cup this morning, as you remember the blood, I want to challenge you to celebrate the new relationship that you have in God because of that. 
You see, often we come to this point in our service and go, you, you need to um, you know, reflect on your own life, and you do. But the reflection is not how well you performed. That was obvious under the old covenant. That's why Jesus came. What you need to reflect on is that through the eyes of Jesus and through his blood, the curse has been removed, and you've been given the blessing. My friends, the greatest difference in that old covenant and this new covenant could be summed up in one word. It's forgiveness. Forgiveness is final and complete. Let's pray, then let's take of the cup. Oh, God, we thank you so much for this cup that we're about to take of that represents your blood and that represents the suffering that Jesus was willing to go through for us. We we don't take this today in some sad way because we are the beneficiaries of this new covenant that was purchased with his blood. And because of this, we are forgiven. So Lord, as we partake together, may we celebrate the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Let's close out just with practically what this means. We now live under the superiority of of this new covenant. Hebrews says the old covenant was obsolete. The old covenant, it, it, it could not accomplish its goal because under Moses' covenant, no one could keep the commandments. And so the curse is still applied. And so under the new covenant, we have that relationship with God where he is our God and we are, we're his people where he writes his laws on our heart where we know the Lord. And he says this, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That's the new covenant. And this morning, if you understand this, there are three things that need to follow in your life. First of all, absolute trust in God. It's so hard for us to enter a covenant Many of you have been hurt in the covenant of marriage because someone literally broke the covenant. That's the old English definition of adultery, the breaking of the covenant. Someone broke the covenant, and it's hard. You've entered covenant relationships and been hurt. But here's what we know because of the cross. is This is a covenant relationship that you can enter with absolute trust. You can enter this relationship with amazing security because Jesus has proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves you. How far is he willing to go? He's willing to die for you. And so, there's security in this covenant. And then second, there's there's paradoxical obedience. The weird thing is you think under the new covenant is maybe we'll become less obedient because the curse has already been paid than we were under the old covenant where we had to pay the curse. The opposite should be true. You see, under under the new covenant, we obey not to earn our salvation. That's already been paid for. We obey out of thanksgiving. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Love will take you much further Love will make you much more holy, much more pure than just legalism. It's like the difference in years ago when you you bought a car, you know, and you went and bought a new car, and you you were making payments on the car. They'd give you a little book, you know, these coupons that you would mail in every month with your check, your car payment. 
you were paying the price for your car. The, the, the difference in the old covenant is, in the old covenant, you were paying the price for your sins. In the new covenant, it's different. It's as if GMC gives you the car and says, the only thing I expect is a thank you note once a month. I'm not looking for a payment. I just want you to say thank you. I'd buy a car that way, wouldn't you? (laughs) Amen. And, And that's what our life is about now. It's not about you and I trying to go out and earn what Jesus has already purchased. It's you and I going out and saying by the way that we live, thank you. I can't get over what you have done for me. I want to be more obedient. And then the third thing it leads to is is more covenant relationships. You see, in the security of the covenant we have with God, I'm able to go out to people, I'm able to go in my marriage and say, I'm making this covenant with you, and I'm going to love you no matter what. You're able to go in a friendship and not go, well, I'll stay in this friendship as long as you call me as many times as I call you. No, 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 I'm I'm in a covenant relationship. I I come into what ought to be one of the great covenant relationships of our life is is church, and we don't come in church going, well, I'll, I'll hang around here as long as you guys are nice to me, as long as you meet my needs, as long as my family's okay. No, you're in a covenant relationship where you say, I don't just come to come, I come to be a part. I don't just attend, I'm a member, I participate. I don't any longer come to church as a consumer. I come as a part of a covenant relationship, a covenant people who covenant with one another to follow Jesus. So let me say this. If you understand what we have said today, if you understand what God has done in this covenant, if you understand what God said to Abraham, I'll keep the covenant whether you do or not. I will take the curse even if it's your fault. And if you understand the reality of that is that it happened on the cross, that Jesus took your curse and therefore gives you all of his blessings, this morning you would not walk down this aisle. You would run. If you have never surrendered your life to Jesus and entered this covenant, that's the beauty of baptism. The beauty of baptism is it's that place where I accept what Jesus has done for me. I don't try to earn it. I simply throw myself upon it. And I'm making a promise to God that I'm going to be a covenant person. If you've been unfaithful and you've wandered from God, let me say to you, He is still faithful. Won't you come back to Him? You see... He's done everything to establish this awesome covenant. Can I ask you this, okay? Are you a covenant person? Are you responding to this incredible God by keeping your covenant? Not perfectly, because you can't, but keeping it. If you understand what he's done for you, if you understand the kind of God he is, he's a good, good father, He's a good father. And you come to him, he just wants to bless you. As the worship team comes up on stage, can I ask you, 
Is today the day for you to make that move and to respond to this covenant? To come to a God who's a whole lot better than you ever thought he was as a person, and you're a whole lot worse than you ever thought you were, and yet he wants to embrace you. If you need to come, why don't you come right now while we all stand and sing?